So, hey everybody, I'm uh, Chris Brooks and I'm a staff writer and organizer with Labor Notes. Um, really excited to be here today with all of you. Um, and up here with me is uh, Sarah Dowd with the New York State Nurses Association, Gia Lee with the Movement of Rank and File Educators Caucus of the United Federation of Teachers, and Ziad Hamad with CWA, Communication Workers of America 1102. Um, so we're going to be talking about kind of like the rank and file strategy, what it means and how we're implementing it here in New York. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Labor Notes and its role in this. Uh, so ha has anybody in here been to a Labor Notes event before? A few of you? Great. Um, so uh, Labor Notes is a media and organizing project um, that's committed to growing what we uh, uh, enthusiastically call the troublemaking wing of the labor movement. Um, so this is the wing of the labor movement that believes in militantly fighting the boss on the job, expanding workplace fights to take on bigger picture issues uh, in the streets, so climate change, racism, sexism, and uh, organizing those fights uh, in a way uh, that centers rank and file democracy. And there's an underlying theory behind this approach, um, and that theory was uh, recently given like a really fantastic in-depth treatment by Micah Utrecht and Barry Eidlin uh, in this labor, journal labor Studies Journal article called U.S. Union Revitalization and the Missing Militant Minority. Um, so if you're interested in this, hit me up afterwards and I can share it with you. And I just want to share their, their definition of this because I think it's very useful in thinking about like why it is we do what we do and how, what the approach is, what the, what the key idea is behind the strategy. So they write, during key periods of growth, the private sector upsurge of the 1930s and 40s and the public sector upsurge of the 60s and 70s, union gains resulted from massive social mobilizations that created crises to which the elites had to respond. These movements also revitalized unions themselves, bringing forth new leadership layers and fresh ideas. These movements were based in the workplace, relying on workers' ability to join together, withhold their labor, and forcibly extract concessions from corporations and governments. Even when conflict did not escalate to strikes, these workers exerted control over their day-to-day -day lives at work, often forging cultures of solidarity that sustained the union as a vital ongoing presence. Um, and they point out that these uh, upsurges had a structure to them that was, uh, that was inherent to the way that the movements exploded. Um, and at its core, that structure was made of what they define as the militant minority, a small layer of activists in the workplace that were recognized as leaders by their co-workers. Not coincidentally, this militant minority was strongly influenced by left-wing ideologies. They were the hardest fighters, the most dedicated organizers, and the one that most actively built unions' cultures of solidarity. Um, they were key in leading the upsurges and consolidating the gains. Um, and their, 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 their argument is that today's labor movement largely lacks the militant minority, and that rebuilding it is central to uh, revitalizing the labor movement as opposed to like technocratic fixes, like labor law reforms. And I think one of the other important things to point out is it's not really, uh, while ideology of the people involved was important, it wasn't that they spread the ideas in their head. What mattered the most is what they did on the job. So they said it's what they did that makes the difference. So what we're hoping to talk about today is what does it look like for us to do this you know, today, in today's labor movement, specifically with the folks who are involved with the labor movement here in New York and their own respective unions and industries. Um, so that's kind of the, the goal. Uh, so in just a minute, all three of the panelists are going to talk about their individual industry and their individual union um, and, and how they bring uh, and what organizing looks like. 
Um, but before we do do that as kind of like an individual approach, I wanted to talk about like there's an organizational approach as well. So in the 60s and 70s, there were many socialist organizations that were what they called industrializing or colonizing, um, you know, they, or, or the turn to the rank and file where they were actively recruiting socialists to go in to get jobs in what they saw as key sectors. And that is again happening today. New York City's uh, Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization, not just in the country, but in New York as well. And they have tried to implement this strategy here. Um, so we'll start off with, with Sarah and Ziad, if you could introduce yourselves a little bit more and then talk about, because um, you're both on the organizing committee of the labor branch, what the rank and file strategy has looked like in implementation in New York from an organizational approach. Okay. And I guess at the hand of Steve. Oh, yeah. Oh. Is this? Okay. Um, my name's Sarah Dowd, uh, New York State Nurses Association. I'm a registered nurse at Harlem Hospital. As Chris said, I'm also on the organizing uh, committee for the labor branch. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what our selection criteria was for choosing industries that would be strategic for socialists to get jobs in. And then Ziad is going to talk a little bit more about the uh, implementation and what it has looked like. Um, so basically, we democratically voted at a citywide convention to take up the rank and file strategy. Um, and Labor Branch developed criteria for selecting which industries would be the most strategic. And we looked at um, several things. No one industry covers all of these, but it's just sort of a framework for thinking about where it makes sense to have a concentration of people. Um, so we looked at things like economic leverage. So like to what extent do workers have power to shut down production? Uh, to what extent do other industries rely on that work? So if you're looking at like uh, shipping, you know, a lot of other industries rely on that. It's strategic for, for economic leverage. Social and political leverage, um, does the industry provide a service that people see as valuable? Is it situated in a way that um, can highlight non-workplace issues that are deeply and widely felt? Um, so if you're looking at teaching and nursing, obviously there's a lot of social leverage there. People respect teachers and nurses. Sorry if a lot of my examples come from nursing, it's just because obviously I'm interested in it. Um, we looked at what are barriers to entry. So if you're looking at, uh, you know, on the downside, like CWA had had a hiring freeze. Sorry, the Communication Workers of America had a hiring freeze. Huge barrier to entry, right? Nobody can get, really get a job there until very recently. Um, or like PSC, the Professional Staff Congress, you have to go to school for a long time, get a doctorate, get a teaching job. That's a huge barrier to entry. Um, DSA member density, it's very difficult to organize alone, as I can tell you. <laughs> um, so we, we're looking at industries that uh, we already have a concentration of people in. Um, what are the working conditions like? Would, would our members actually be interested in working there? Are the wages decent? Is the work backbreaking, or is it not too bad? Um, what is the union's internal and external political status? Um, so looking at unions that are more democratic, that, that we can have an opening to voice um, working class concerns, or is, you know, is the bureaucracy so entrenched that there's no hope of any movement? Um, and then finally, demographics. Are the demographics of the uh, industry of particular interest to the kind of base DSA wants to organize? Obviously, we're looking at you know, more working class, um, diverse industries. 
that really represent the demographics of the working class. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand it to Ziad um, to talk Zia, about rolling it out. Yeah. Uh, member of CWA 1102, I work for Verizon. I work in construction on telephone poles. Um, and I joined the labor branch organizing committee in DSA last January, I want to say. No, last summer at some point, July, I want to say. Anyway, um, so a lot of what we've been focusing on after the citywide convention we had in the summer of last year was the rank and file resolution, or what we call within the organization Resolution 33. Um, how we roll that out after we voted on the categories uh, for selecting an industry and actually voting on what industries were selected um, is by building up support groups of people in our networks. So. Throughout the history of the labor branch in New York City, DSA, we've had staff, we've had members, we've had lawyers in unions that are kind of on our, I guess our role um, within DSA. And a lot of us have personal connections to these folks. We work together or we're friends or we have similar politics so we can talk about these things together. Um, but what we wanna do more intentionally in the labor branch is offer space where, you know, those conversations aren't being held informally. They're actually happening at labor branch meetings or before labor branch meetings. So for example, we have trainings that have been put on by uh, people from labor notes, but also rank and file members, but also staff of unions um, that are free to the public. Regardless of your labor union affiliation or worker center or whatever, you can come in, get a training. Um, and we have, we've done three so far and we're gonna do the same three again. So hoping that motivates people to continue coming to trainings and also see the value of workplace organizing. Um, another thing we wanna do is use those networks to build support groups in every industry. So that applies to both the industries that we've selected as strategic from the perspective of the membership of the labor branch, but also anyone can come in and say, hey, I really wanna meet with a group of workers from my workplace, can I have some time? We'd be like, of course, just come in, 6.30, sit down, figure out some issues that you want to talk about, and we can offer people guidance on, you know, if they're having some kind of issue, or we can connect them with someone who might be able to help them. Um, that is, I think, the main goal of the Labor Branch Organizing Committee going forward, is now that we've selected these industries, how do we get people to sit together and go through what they learned in their trainings and actually apply that to their workplace? Um, there are some preliminary steps that people have taken because the trainings are very hands-on and people talk about their workplace, what campaigns they could run with. And some of it is very like abstract, you know, especially if people are not in a union, like how do we get people to come together and fight this fight? But I don't, I don't imagine that people have had this opportunity um, in their workplaces to talk about, you know, okay, like let's run with these issues and actually build a campaign and talk to other people who have done this, about how we could do this. Uh, so personally, that's very exciting. We also do political ed through the labor branch. Um, we have panels like this one, but I think the, the crux of what we're doing is support groups, support networks, and using, we do, we do approach this from the rank and file perspective, but we want to leverage the power of staff and lawyers and other uh, members of the union in building a bigger labor movement that of course focuses on providing a service to the membership, but also activating the membership, that kind of thing. Did I miss anything? 
Well, no, I don't. I think that was great. And then, like, we also too. Because um, you know, there's been this huge influx of people into DSA, and they're coming from all different ideas of like, what does it mean to be a socialist? Um, and so we're trying to also go around to the geographic branch meetings and talk about what is the rank and file strategy. Why does it make sense for socialists to be in the labor movement? Um, just because it's not always an intuitive analysis for people that are just coming to socialism. Um, so trying to do that, as he said, some member education and then just getting people excited about the six industries that we chose. Great, so this is uh, kind of the broader institutional approach and we're gonna kind of turn now to like individually what it's been like uh, for everybody up here and, and why they think their industries are important. And um, we'll start with uh, Gia and I'm hoping that you can talk to us about um, how you were radicalized on the job so you didn't go into teaching because you were a socialist uh, but became a socialist through teaching and how that led you to uh, caucus politics and what that means for the broader idea of politicizing people on the job. Yeah, I just found out that I was a socialist. <laughs> um, I didn't know, you know, my whole life that I was until um, it was like the perfect trifecta of things occurring. And I know, you know, you never, I don't know if you've, any of you have ever had that experience of not knowing what you were through your ideology because of various factors. Um, but then when it does happen, um, it becomes clear about, uh, like what needs to happen. And so I am a member of DSA and it was the labor branch that brought me really to DSA and the, um, this idea that it's the working people um, that has been historically and you know, systematically oppressed for forever. Um, and that unless we get organized strategically and have a way of doing that, a path to it, um, that we were going to be forever in this situation and it's just getting worse. So um, I came into teaching in 2001, the year of 9-11, that September. So it's now been 18, 19 years of teaching in the Department of Education. Um, and the year of No Child Left Behind. So if you know, it's like the first big hit of ed privatization. Um, and so that, was, that became kind of a, a slow process for me because I didn't know anything about leftist politics. Um, I came from California originally. I had these values though. And I think that's what we're talking about in the labor movement is these set of values that have to do with um, wanting to nurture and take care of our children um, to have a world in which we can actually you know, say it's going to be inhabitable right, the climate, and that these forces coming down are about creating an increasing gap between rich and poor, so making the lives of working people even more oppressive, and, um, and with zero value to the limited resources we have on the planet, right? Um, and as an educator, we work with children. We work with children in which we're constantly telling them these values, but then our society is telling them a different set of values, right? Society is telling them you have to compete. It's dog-eat-dog. -dog. You have to compete and you're gonna, you have to fight for the limited number of jobs. So there's this internal tension within schools um, that exists. And it was through that realization that, you know, uh, where's my union? 
on, this, on these issues of ed privatization and corporatization. I started asking these questions. In the classrooms, we're having a really oppressive administrative attack on teachers. You know, drive-by observations, um, teacher ratings based on standardized test scores, um, completely not objective at all. And then the union leadership is kind of sitting at the table around these policies and taking them on. And their rhetoric was at the time, of course, and this came straight out of the mouth of our union president, Michael Mulgrew, um, yeah, we should be able to see how you can take a child from point A to point B, meaning test score wise. So of course, test score is an objective measure because you can't trust the administrators. So our own union bosses, right, our own union bosses were, uh, I would, became in my mind an arm of, of the government, an arm of the bureaucratic structure. And so what do you do with that as a teacher? Right, and you know, teachers were almost, I don't know, almost 80% female. We grow up uh, trying to be, you know, probably a lot of us were like the good student, wanting to please, not wanting to rock the boat, wanting to get along, overworking ourselves. This is kind of the value system. You, you saw story after story of um, teachers spending their summers working, you know, to, to buy their class set of these books. Or, and those stories are glorified all over the place um, of very selfless you know, workers. And so when this gets portrayed and there's this achievement gap facing us, um, for me, in that moment, something, didn't, something wasn't right. Something was not right. And I started to do a little research. Someone sent me a Jacobin article uh, called Lean Production. It was in that book. So how many of you guys know that article? It's by Will Johnson. Lean production. And it's about the lean production model in public education. And that's when I started to connect the economic system, the capitalist system, to what was happening in our classrooms. And if that was happening to us, it was happening to our students' families, and it was happening to our greater society. That became the first step. Um, then I found the movement of Rankin Flat Educators. It formed very long, like 2000, I want to say 2013. And that's probably a little bit before that through the grassroots, grassroots education movement. Um, and there were many members of the ISO, the International um, Socialist Organization. And they helped form more, this caucus. And within there, that space, there was a lot of contention, a lot of people from old UFT who are very uh, skeptical of the left within our caucus, and then the ISO folks who were giving us some political education, right? Then there was this internal kind of blow up, and I'm very transparent about this because it did. It caused huge internal strife and tension and fights, and there were a group of us teachers who were kind of caught in the middle of it who hadn't formed our political ideology at all, right? So that to me is the history of the labor movement in a lot of places where you have people from the outside coming in who have leftist socialist politics. Um, and then the, you know, the people who have a lot of wariness to it because of history and things like that. But there were, then there were people like me who um, did not react and just kind of took information and formulate this idea based on the information that was given. So 
bunch of us got together and saw that the campaign, the Fiscal Policy Institute, this national study, found that New York State uh, led the nation in having the greatest income gap. And New York City, uh, the top 1% earned, actually that's New York State, the top 1% earned 44 times more than the bottom 99%, and they pointed to two counties in New York, New York City and Westchester, having even greater income inequality. So the top 1% in, in Manhattan earned 116 times more than the bottom 99%. And so as teachers working in this public ed system, we're talking about the greatest income gap and the greatest uh, oppressive system within you know, not, I just don't want to say like globally probably, um, as an example of private forces having an influence on real estate, so where our kids live, where we live, um, our ability to afford housing, healthcare, all of our public hospitals being systematically shut down, um, funding cut, and, but who, who are the people in the public and the media being blamed for it? we're being blamed for the downfall of public education. And so with that and noticing that my union wasn't doing anything about it, they were actually going along with that rhetoric um, and seeing the absolute necessity for a rank and file led a movement of educators with not just a political understanding but also an organizing strategy. So um, I could go on about the importance of people with the political analysis coming in to help educate, um, but it's absolutely necessary because then people like me wouldn't have, have ever come to this, you know, at all. So, yeah, I'll save the rest for later on. Thank you. <laughs> um, so next we're gonna. Add uh, talk to Sarah. Um, uh, so Nizna was taken over uh, a few years back by a rank and file reform slate that has done uh, a number of really important things. They kicked out the supervisors. Um, they fought the shutdown of public sector hospitals in the city. In fact, I think Bill de Blasio can thank Nizna for his election in some ways because he was actively getting arrested on their lines um, and got their support as a result of that. Um, they lined up their contracts uh, and they've created a joint employer table like in the private sector where they're forcing multiple hospitals to have to bargain with the, the union um, on a whole. So it's a, it's a private and public sector union. It's statewide, um, but many members are located in the city where they're um, uh, uh, working for some of the largest employers. Um, and like teaching, nursing is an industry that seems to be uh, really ripe um, for leading the way in terms of transforming the labor movement overall. Um, so Sarah, I was hoping you could talk to us about uh, why you became a nurse and how you see the industry and uh, the role of NISNA in New York. Um, I guess why, why I became a nurse, I didn't really write that in my notes, but I could tell you. <laughs> um, I, well, I, basically I went to school for humanities and got like radicalized at that point um, and almost went to grad school because I thought that that's what you did if you were a leftist. Um, and then I realized that would suck and so I, <laughs> for me, not like in general. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I, I moved to New York, um, went to the AFL-CIO Organizing Institute, almost became a union staffer, and realized that that would not be right for me either. 
Um, so <laughs> I, <laughs> I went back to school for nursing. I was, I was like, I think um, in order to be effective as a leftist, um, I have to be with people that are already doing this work. Um, and I looked and, and it seemed like a lot of nurses unions in New York were trying to do this work, particularly uh, the New York State Nurses Association. Um, so that's how I came to nursing. Um, I guess I just wanted to talk about, you know, the, the title of the panel, the role of socialists in the labor movement and the labor movement uh, effect on socialism. Um, just to me, the role of socialists in the labor movement, it's two things. Um, I mean, it's way more than two things, but I'm going to talk about two things. Um, Finding points where organizing for better working conditions and fighting for broader working class demands overlap um, and having that resonate with people in a way that they're ready to take militant action. Um, and the only way to do that is the second thing, which is activating and maintaining an organized and militant rank and file. Um, so in my mind, the, the way I'm approaching NISNA is with those two things in mind. Um, and, and as far as the role of the labor movement on socialism, um, I see it as, as our work is trying to develop a broad base of support for socialist and socialistic demands. And so in order to do that, we have to be broad and open enough um, that we're capable of organizing with other rank-and-file militants that may or may not call themselves socialists. So we're not trying to be like very ideological. Um, and, and that will root our socialism in the working class and force us to have humility uh, to learn from the group of people that we believe should be running the world. Um, so with that in mind, I want to talk a little bit about the contract campaign that we're undertaking in the public hospital system right now um, as like an attempt to bring those two things together and, and uh, push for, for broader demands. Um, so it's framed as uh, healthcare justice for the other New York. And we're basically trying to explicitly call out the disparities between the public and private hospital systems. And uh, as a lot of us probably realize, that is a direct result of capitalism and our current economic system. Um, the way the reimbursement structure works through the whole country uh, leaves public hospital systems chronically underfunded, which directly and negatively affect the working conditions uh, and the healing conditions of patients. So our contract campaign is basically trying to mobilize nurses to fight for Medicare for all, which would help fund the hospital system, thus improving the conditions for nurses and the healing conditions for patients. Um, so as socialists participating in this campaign, we're trying to speak to as many rank and file nurses as possible to delineate the connections between the working conditions and capitalism. Um, and it's very actually intuitive for a lot of people because they know that the private system is funded well. They know that, you know, which is not to say it's paradise over there, but like, you know, um, people know that, that uh, we are serving homeless, poor, working class, people of color, um, and, and it's not a coincidence that our hospital system is also underfunded.
it's the same thing. Um, so trying to draw those connections with capitalism as a larger structure and what people are seeing at work. Um, because we know uh, also that we will not win without fighting. We're trying to also agitate towards militant action um, that is disruptive and creates the kind of crisis that, that they're talking about in this article that Chris mentioned. Just for talk about anything else? Um, next, we're going to turn to Ziad. So, um, I'm sure everybody who is around New York or conscious of the labor movement all remembers that uh, in 2016, 39,000 Verizon wireless workers uh, went on strike in the East Coast, and it was the largest private sector strike in the country uh, since the last time the same Verizon workers went on strike uh, in 2011. Um, so Verizon is the second largest uh, telecom corporation in the world. It routinely posts over a billion dollars in profit a month. Um, and CWA uh, was capable of turning their strike into a national referendum on corporate greed and skyrocketing inequality, which is pretty amazing. Um, so I was hoping you could talk to us about uh, you know, CWA and the pivotal role it plays in New York City and kind of the labor movement. Um, sure. I mean, for transparency's sake, I have been a member of CWA since last January. Uh, so I'm a new member. My experience with the labor movement is actually pretty limited. Uh, I would say, I'll give like, a little bit of context about like why I'm a socialist or like, you know, my drive to like the rank and file strategy within unionism. Um, I'm, I'm come from a family of immigrants, so our perspective was very much based in like, we're coming to this country, we're not very welcome here, but we're still like, you know, it's a place where you can build a life that is very different from your country of origin. Mm -hmm. um, so I have my family to thank for a lot of my ideals, I would say, because uh, there was always this thread of internationalism in uh, my life. And a lot of what we learned in school, in the public school system, was like this these American libertarian ideals, not like libertarian party, but like, Right. Libertarianism in terms of you know individualism and like actual solidarity and like freedom from government control or institutional control, but also like federalism and these these concepts. So those really stuck with me growing up. But I always saw the conflict between those and our actual you know economic system and government. Um, and so when I looked at labor unions, I saw kind of the same thing. I was like these top-down structures what's going on. In theory, these are fantastic institutions. They have this really militant history. They've changed the lives of millions of people, billions of people. Um, what's going on? What's happening with this? Uh, and so for a while, I was really disengaged from the labor movement. I saw it as like, I think what a lot of leftists think of the labor movement, unfortunately, which is this like old kind of like shell of what it used to be. Yeah. But. Over time, I actually talked to members and I actually talked to staff, and I was like, okay, this narrative is clearly just being put out by like people who don't understand the potential there or the value in using the labor movement as a way to drive forward socialism. So to me, I really found a home uh, in the labor movement because of this focus on the rank and file strategy based probably in my like indoctrination through like American libertarianism mm -hmm. which is funny because it actually gives you an in in conversation with coworkers. so the reason I brought that up is because as a member of CWA I'm actually a member on Staten Island a lot of my coworkers are white you know 
working class, if you want to define it that way, but like they're doing better than the people of color on Staten Island, and they know it. And they feel very comfortable, despite some factors, like a lot of them used to be uh, workers at Spectrum. Spectrum is still on strike, uh, members of Local 3, and they had to leave that job because, you know, they didn't want to cross the picket line, but they had no, no income, you know? They're in thousands of dollars of debt, they came to Verizon, you know, really disillusioned with um, what happened in their strike, and they saw no connection between the economic system and, you know, what they were facing at Spectrum. They thought, oh, you know, our union messed up. I was like, that's part of it, but also why are you focusing on, like, your ally when you should be focusing on the main factor in this situation, which is Spectrum screwing you guys over. Right. So, um, in conversation with my coworkers, a lot of a lot of what we talk about is like, okay, where, why are people so focused on like bashing their unions versus bashing the corporations? And CWA actually has a is very progressive in this respect and has done a very good job at training members through uh, Runaway Inequality is one of the classes that they have put out um, in collaboration with I forget who started it, but. There was a, a book written called Runaway Inequality, and that book was adapted to like a short training that people could attend and talk about American inequality in ways that are accessible to workers. So it covers economic inequality, but also talks about you know sexism and racism and how those contribute to that. So CWA is very progressive in that respect and fairly democratic in that my local has exerts a lot of you know local control. Um, over the membership, and we have a lot of opportunities to speak up in meetings or, you know, put forward proposals. The issue is that, you know, there isn't enough, there is an assumption that the members will, you know, run with what they're given. It's an open floor, take it. Well, members don't really have any experience taking the initiative in a union, especially coming from a place like, I'm going to say, like Local 3, where it's like less democratic. Um, so whenever someone comes up to a mic in my union, it's very strange for most of the membership to see someone new on the mic. Um, and I think, you know, the role of, of socialists in CWA should be to bolster that effort of new members trying to get up there and talk about things. Um, there is a bit of a conflict that people raise often with me um, in Staten Island, but it's ex it's not exclusive to Staten Island, which is. Why would you empower members who are conservative or racist or sexist? Why would you do that? My, my perspective on this issue is actually that that is like a falsehood. If we were to you know, build a movement of workers, a mass movement of workers in this country and extend it beyond the borders of this country, we need to empower members to see the reality, the material reality, which is why we're all here today. The material reality that they're facing and that will radicalize them. My perspective, I mean, I gave a little bit of that um, earlier, is very much based in like material reality or just some ideals that were given to me about, you know, why, why do things function this way? Well, it's about money. People all know everything is about money. My members talk about it all the, all the time. Like, they complain, oh, everything's driven by money. These union bureaucrats are driven by money. The corporations are driven by money. But, you know, I'm going to still cut taxes to major corporations. <laughs> And it's just, it's really, it gives you an in to say, okay, why? Why are you not making that connection? 
Um, and I think we need more socialists who have this perspective that goes beyond liberalism to be in these conversations and have one-on-ones and really do. Some of the organizing that our unions don't have the capacity to or don't see the, the opportunity for. Um, and I want to be like clear that you know, despite these, what I'm giving is criticisms for a number of unions that exist, like this is constructive criticism. This is not an opportunity for people to say, wow, these, these unions really need to go because they're really fucking up. Oh, well, they are, they are in a different position. These are structural problems, and we see structural problems in our entire you know, global society, I would say, when it comes to government, when it comes to unions, when it comes to schools, when it comes to hospitals. Like, these issues can be dealt with in a much more productive way than the conversations that we have going on today. Um, with CWA and, I mean, the 2016 strike, as Chris said, a lot of members, even on Staten Island, or particularly on Staten Island, were mobilized to work on the Bernie campaign. That is something at the federal level that could benefit workers throughout the states and potentially outside of the bounds of the country. We're seeing another moment where Bernie is coming into the fore. You know, think what you will about electoral politics, but for a lot of members, engaging in politics in this way is very disempowering, but when they see a candidate talking to them and going to their strike about issues in their workplace, issues of pay, issues of benefits, you know, the very basic needs that you have to have a livelihood in this country, um, it is an exciting moment. And I think, you know, not to get too much into electoral politics, but there was a lot of value in a staff member from the union coming down and talking to members about how he believes this has nothing to do with Republican and Democrat or any candidate. He spoke to the members and said, this is about someone putting people in positions of power that are gonna dictate things that affect your life that you don't see because they're in the halls of power. And this is, your union is a place where you should combat these things regardless of party line. He was saying this to a room full of you know, Trump voters. So it is a really important place to be in CWA because um, I personally have the opportunity to talk to my coworkers and have people think about these things. But there is also, there are tons, I want to emphasize this, tons of good staff and good lawyers in these unions who have the same perspective as the rank and file activists. They may not even be socialists, like Gia said, and from my perspective as well, like we find out that we're socialists at some point in our life. I don't know if like we're born socialists unless your parents are really, you know, giving you books at a young age that drive you in that direction. Um, but this political consciousness has to be built somehow. And I think that CWA has been a very effective uh, union in doing that. But we need more socialists everywhere, generally, because had I not, yeah, had I not known about socialism or you know some leftist politic, I would still. Ooh, my bad. Um, I would still be kind of like floundering this like liberalism of America that doesn't really offer a real material perspective on you know how to improve things. I think that's my take. I, don't know. I hope I didn't miss anything. There's plenty of time to make it up if you did. I don't think you did that. Um, Real quick, did you did you become a socialist before or after you joined the union? Oh, I was yeah before. I would say I would say my radicalizing moment was 
Well, no, it's not one moment. That's the problem. Um, like, I went to college and I was still like, I was like taking courses on like communism and socialism and this like, you know, the grand project of like having like this huge federation of like purportedly socialist countries and all the, you know, the burden of people who like were socialists but had to deal with authoritarianism. I was studying that. And I think that was like the point at which I. I would say, you know, I'm going to be very honest, I would say, and be ready, I'm an anarchist because the utopia within anarchism extends beyond this, like, um, kind of, like, cadre or, like, authoritarianism, like, I don't know. I, we shouldn't get into my politics too much, but, like, yeah, like, there are a lot of things wrong with the word, with the word anarchist, uh, I acknowledge that, but I would say, like, when I was studying communism and socialism, I was very much drawn to anarchism, because I was like, if we get socialism, that'd be amazing, like, I'd be so happy if we had anti-authoritarian socialism, but, like, I talked to so many socialists who are happy to have Stalinism, and I'm just like, that's not cool. <laughs> but you went and got this job uh, because I, you were a socialist. Because I was a socialist and an at the same time, you know, to me it's like, yeah. you know, we're all comrades. Um, but to me, I got this job because I was working at a nonprofit, and I was like, this is, you know, the backdoor dealings here are horrible. Like, I need a job, but I also can't do this for too long. And I was like, I need to do something that makes my life meaningful in every day and you know yeah. every day is like I'm talking about socialism to my coworkers and that's why I'm, that's why I'm doing this. All right, so we're going to turn over the floor in just a second. So I have just one more question for the whole uh, panel. Um, so uh, especially during and after the election of President Trump, uh, whenever we talk about the working class in this country, it's typically stipulated that it is white men that we're thinking of. There's this weird like vision that we still have of Arch Archie Bunker and hard hats versus hippies. Um, but what we actually see is that uh, people of color and women are disproportionately in the working class and that um, the places where the labor movement is taking off, right, where we're really seeing the most action is uh, in women-led professions uh, like nursing and teaching. Um, so I, I'm just wondering uh, what y'all think about in terms of as socialists in the labor movement, how that should impact our organizing and how we think about what our priorities are and what our approach is that, um, that this is the case. Can anyone take it from here? Yep. I can start. Um, I will say that the the attack on working people is one that's rooted in patriarchy, right? Um, and that it's it's also racist. We're seeing it institutionally racist, and you know socialism exists for corporate people, but it's, right? <laughs> they give themselves a lot of socialist benefits and, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of benefits. And I just saw a hearing with bankers um, who were talking about the need, the necessity for a free market to avoid corruption in the government. I'm like, do you even hear yourself? You're basic, you basically are our government. Um, and so, you know, with that, I, I think about this attack as, yes, it's patriarchal, and that the fact that the majority of workers uh, are women and people of color um, is not coincidental. It's very much, I think, we're at the crux of, of destroying patriarchy. And that if we don't build off of this tension and have our allies with us, our white allies, our white male allies, um, and yes, patriarchy can exist in POC spaces. 
it most definitely exists in places uh, that purport civil rights and civil um, rights movements and, and things like that. And so we have to be clear about white supremacist um, practices and policies beyond just people's skin tones, right? Um, and that even as a teacher, I see white supremacy and patriarchy existing in some of my colleagues, right, who have this internal tension. I know I carry it. Um, and that the work starts with us being reflective about that so that we don't perpetuate um, policies um, that further oppress. And so what that speaks to for me is this part, I don't know if you've brought it with me. Eric Blank just, you know, Blank just uh, published his book, Red State Revolt. If you, I, when I came up earlier, there was only one book left on the table. So get it. Um, this is all about the West Virginia educator strikes, Arizona and Oklahoma. Uh, Eric is also, has also been really integral in being um, with us in the teacher movement, the rank and file movement. So he has a really clear context and he has interviews in here that really speak to what we're talking about right now. I just wanna give a quote. It's like demonstrations, civil disobedience and electoral campaigns haven't been enough on their own to reverse the neoliberal tide. In the absence of a strong labor movement capable of challenging capital and state, organized radicals have remained marginal and movements against oppression and environmental devastation have been unable to generate the social strength necessary to extract their most far-reaching demands. And the fact that this is women and predominantly POC-led movements right now um, speaks to the potential. And then Eric also quotes uh, Polish socialist Rosa Luxemburg, those who do not move, move do not notice their chains. And so I'm having these conversations with my colleagues, which are 99% women in my school, including my administration, and we are having these conversations about the West Virginia strikes, uh, Arizona strikes, and what does it really mean? And then it's taking us to the question that hasn't been answered yet in New York about, so what is the privatization, the ed privatization? What is the privatization movement in healthcare in New York State? Because it takes on a very neoliberal, progressive veneer, and so we have to be very clear in our politics um, because like I said, a lot of us still carry uh, these nuanced politics that if we're not clear about socialism can take us to negotiating. And I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said in a letter from a Birmingham jail about what he's most concerned about. It's not the outright racist, the KKK. He's most concerned about Right, the, the moderate white, the moderate. And this is, um, so this is our tipping point. And in terms of organizing, people like me um, need to have these things kind of confronted. We need to confront it and we need to bring as many of these trainings, um, readings, book readings, like the, the Lean Production article was so, I, I mean, it was approachable. I could connect with it from a very neoliberal vantage, and it took me a step closer. Um, talking about the West Virginia strike, where there were many teachers who voted for Trump, but they took an action that took them a step closer to understanding their condition. Um, and that's through actions, it's through these daily interactions that we will get closer to a broader mass, I think, who will understand socialism.
you best when jumping this question? It's hard to follow that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I would just say, um, I mean, I think a lot of nurses realize that um, when we're talking about engaging in fights uh, around inequality in healthcare, around Medicare for all, uh, around our working conditions, that it is very much like a fight for our lives. Not just for the patients, like the patients' lives as well, but the workers themselves. Like, I had a coworker last week that had a stroke, mm -hmm. you know? And this is not the first story I've heard like that. Brandon, you don't, it's not, you could have a stroke and not be a nurse, of course, but the, just the amount of times that this kind of stressful environment yeah. affects the health of nurses is like, disproportionate it's you know it's and and so um, yeah I think I think just nurses know that we're fighting for our lives as much as we are for our patients when we when we fight for working conditions and and we're well situated to engage in fights of you know around broader you know inequality in health care um, and I think as far as how that should impact our organizing is like there's kind of a thread, particularly in nursing, of um, being the good nurse, being professional, a professional being respectable, and to kind of interrogate that and say, we have a responsibility to be loud and militant um, because this is a fight for our lives, you know? so. Um, I have, I don't, I don't know how to describe the, the position I'm in right now very well. Um, my local is, I would say, 60 to 65 percent white, 35 percent black, um, or like 32 percent black and 3 percent other. <laughs> um, but we deal with racism all the time and it affects the work. It affects the work and it affects safety actually. Um, it affects representation in the union um, and also access to information, access to resources in a very just like in your face way, um, at least in my local. And it's not the fault of the local, it is really amongst the membership. The membership and the managers actually really love to exploit racism. It's so blatant. There was segregation by race <laughs> between two managers in my local, in my garage. It was baffling and everyone knew. The white members knew, the black members knew. They saw it and they were like, you see what's going on? And I was like, of course, who isn't seeing what's going on? And they exploited that to give preferential treatment to the black workers so that the white workers would get angry. And it started this whole thing. This is like, this happens all the time. And this is not, you know, a government institution doing this and like, this is just inherent like racism in our society that's like manifesting in the smallest way. Small, you know, in terms of or structure and, you know, at what level it's happening, but it's affecting people's lives and their safety. And, you know, someone could get hurt as a result of this stuff. So I think my, what we deal with in my local, um, is just like having conversations among black and white members about like okay you know why 
why are we not getting along? What's, what's the issue here? There is an assumption of ill will on both sides, which is rooted in the history of this country, especially on Staten Island. Um, and to me, you know, being in the middle of that, I'm lucky that I have the trust of my coworkers because I speak to everyone with respect as much as I can when we talk about these things. Like my coworkers will approach me on issues of like trans misogyny and be like, listen man, I would never talk to anyone about this, but I feel like you won't give me shit for this. What's the deal? What are these politics? I don't understand it, but like, I know my position is based in my experience. How can like we find common ground? And I'm just like, I didn't even raise this question with you. You came up to me at a bar. Like, this is unbelievable. But it's just like treating people with respect amongst the membership you have like true solidarity, which does come from patriarchy in many respects. Like it is a brotherhood. The union is a brotherhood, really like driven by like testosterone and like ball busting and like all that stuff. But you know, I'm lucky that you know, I've, I'm a product of the patriarchy, so I've grown up with a lot of this and like it's fun sometimes. But when it's not fun, I have to like stop it and be like, what are you doing? Like, why are you saying those things? And that is really the role of like male feminists in this movement is to like draw that line and say that's not cool. And then go from there and be like, so why are you being such a jerk? Like what, where does this stem from? And often like I'll talk to my coworkers and they'll be like, well, it's like, you know, that's just how things are. And I'm like, where did you learn that? I'm like, I don't know. You have to push people. You have to push people constantly to re-evaluate their politics with regard to race, gender, sexuality, everything class. Um, the class thing is much more nuanced than the way that we talk about it in leftist circles, I want to say. Mm -hmm. In DSA, class is, I, in my opinion, the main driver of like racial um, makeup of the organization. It is not just like racial makeup, it is very much about class. The same goes for issues at my workplace. There is a class perspective lost among my coworkers that is very much tied to race, and the overlap there needs to be explored more in uh, my local. So I think there is a lot of room to work on you know, racial justice, uh, gender justice, a number of factors. Um, but yeah, it has to be done through honest conversation, and it has to be done in a nonpartisan, material way, again. Um, and I think, I'm confident that you know, we have a lot of good people you know, socialists in New York City who understand this, um, but I think that should be something that is discussed more uh, at a higher level in the union. And it's the members' roles to, to do this. That's it, I think. Great. Um, and just so folks know, the, the book you mentioned earlier, Runaway Inequalities by Les Leopold, and I highly recommend it. Um, and CWA is one of the few unions in the country that is actually trying to move a political education program in their union to talk to their members about issues like race and class. I mean, like, like the number of unions that are doing this, you can count on like half a hand. So it's really incredible. 